0: Nagging. Naturalist. It's the Nagging Naturalist podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Nagging Naturalist. This episode is going to be my second installment for the Critter Connection, where I talk about wildlife news and things going on in the world of wildlife in general. But before I get into that, I did want to talk a little bit about how this month is going to go down. Basically, as you may have noticed, there is no animal of the month episode starting off July. I'm taking a bit of a break this month while I still intend to post some episodes. They're going to be smaller, shorter segmented episodes, and I will not be focusing on a particular species for the month. Basically I'm back at volunteering and my new school semester has started. And so in order to kind of balance work and school, I'm going to pull back a little bit on the podcast. Now, I still intend to produce content, but because the way I've designed the Animal of the Month series to go, it takes me basically my whole week to develop those episodes. And so because they're so time intensive, I wanted to take a little bit of a break from that so that I'd have more time for school and volunteering and making sure that... I've gotten everything straightened out and balanced before I shift my focus back to the podcast. So this is just for the month of June for the moment. Hopefully in July, things will be back on track and I'll have a new animal to talk about. But this month, I'm just going to find some fun topics to talk about concerning wildlife, and we'll see where it goes. (laughs) Anyway, Launching into the Critter Connection, for those of you who may have heard the last one where I discussed the new species of sharks that had been announced, this is basically just a segment where I sit down and just talk about some fun news that's going on, whether it's new species being discovered or other announcements, conservation successes, etc. For this particular one, I wanted to highlight something really cool that happened in Florida recently. So as of June 29th, Florida has expanded an existing preserve they have. So the St. Martin's Marsh Aquatic Preserve in the Crystal River of Florida has been around since 1969. So it's, it's not new, but the 400,000 additional acres that have been protected are new. And this is a huge deal because most of what's being protected is seagrasses. If you're unfamiliar with seagrasses, they grow in uh, warm coastal areas where the water is very clear. They do completely live underwater. These are grasses like you would see on land. They're not a type of algae. They're actual grass, but they grow in water. These types of habitats are very important for those of you who are familiar with some of the fauna that exist along the Florida coast, like manatees and sea turtles, seagrass beds are essential for their survival. This is what they eat. Green sea turtles and ridleys and the manatees and many other species rely on these. And because it's in an estuary, estuaries in and of themselves are basically like these highly productive habitats that see such a huge influx of wildlife either seasonally or year round. It's a place where migratory birds visit. You can find all kinds of animals. And because estuaries are where freshwater typically meets salt water and it tends to be very brackish, there's overlap in species. There are species that you would normally see in freshwater environments that can exist in these estuaries and vice versa. there are creatures in the ocean for example, bull sharks that can actually enter estuaries and actually swim up into practically freshwater environments. And also there are some species that are specifically evolved to live in brackish environments. Up here in Maryland, we have terrapins, which the uh, term terrapin comes from a Native American term. I believe it's said to be an Algonquian term that basically means Some people say edible turtle, but some also say edible brackish water turtle specifically. So these turtles are known for living in these brackish environments. It's not the same as the land-dwelling turtles and some of the freshwater turtles we see inland, and they're not the same as sea turtles. They specifically exist in brackish water environments. So that being said... Estuaries are very important ecosystems. They are highly productive, like I said before, and it attracts a lot of biodiversity. And because seagrass beds are so essential to the biodiversity of the native fauna in Florida, it's incredible that they've taken the time to protect 400,000 acres of what is mostly seagrasses, because this is really going to help not just the wildlife, but this also is huge for their economy as well. So in Florida, fishing and collecting shellfish such as crabs and scallops are a really big industry for Florida. Pew Trust actually says that seagrass-related activities in that region of the U.S. generate $600 million annually for the economy and provides about 10,000 jobs and supports 500 plus businesses just in things related to seagrass. So that includes... Collecting fish and shellfish, ecotourism, and even um, some other services that are provided as well, such as water quality. So this is a very big deal too. Is water quality is very important in these regions because seagrasses can't exist in poor water quality areas. So if you're having polluted areas that have deadly al- algae blooms that murk up the water and block sunlight, seagrasses can't exist. It's incredibly important that seagrass beds are healthy, clear water areas, and they will help support that too. So the grasses in the water will help absorb nutrients from the water to help keep it clean. And there are even species that have jobs of keeping seagrasses clean. I can't think of any specific examples of Florida because I'm not super familiar with Florida's aquatic fauna outside of the megafauna, but when I lived in California, when they reintroduced sea otters to Elkhorn Slough, which was the Monterey Bay's local estuary, they began eating the small crabs living in the seagrasses, and this actually helped to stabilize the seagrass beds and make them healthy again, because there are small slugs called sea hares that lived on the seagrass beds and would actually eat the algae that accumulated on the grasses. And this is important because if the algae overgrows on the grasses, the grasses can't absorb sunlight and photosynthesize and thrive. So when the otters were gone, the crabs overpopulated, ate too many of these sea hares and prevented the seagrass beds from thriving and they degradated for decades. And so when they reintroduced the sea otters and the sea otters began eating the shellfish, which included the crab, it actually helped to restore the health of the seagrass beds of Elkhorn Slough. So with that being said, it is really important to have a well-balanced and healthy ecosystem when it comes to seagrass beds because if you remove certain species or the water quality degradates, it can completely demolish seagrass beds very easily and then species like manatees and sea turtles will continue to struggle. So it's very exciting to hear that not only was this signed by the governor, but this was supported by Florida's House and Senate. Now, a large part of that is most likely because in Florida, fishing is such a big draw for tourism, and it also generates about $11 billion and supports over 100,000 jobs. That's another part of the economy that really benefits from this. So sports fishermen understand that if they don't keep their waters clean and healthy, they're not going to be able to enjoy sports fishing. Sometimes there's very big pushes, not just from environmentalists, but also from people who enjoy recreational fishing or other recreational activities involving water, who also want to make sure that these habitats are protected and supported. These groups also helped to voice their support of expanding this preserve and making sure that the health of the ecosystem was prioritized in order to ensure that not only that they could enjoy it, but many of them have cited that they hope that future generations will be able to benefit from the existence of this preserve and its protection of the local habitats. In other news, as states begin to attempt to reopen and people are able to visit places that have previously been closed, Wildlife officials are trying to remind people that there are still species who are breeding and raising their young right now. So while our big baby boom for many bird species has come and gone, there are still some species of bird that are breeding and raising their chicks. And also there are going to be mammals like bears and deer and elk who are also raising their young. In Maine, as people are returning to the beaches, they are trying to remind people that plovers are nesting. And if you're unfamiliar with plovers, they often nest directly on the sand. Like literally, they'll just look like for a tiny dent in the sand and then plop an egg in there. They do not build any nest or anything that helps you identify where they're nesting. And even worse, their camouflage is so perfect, they are virtually invisible sometimes on the beach. So if you are visiting, whether you're in Maine or elsewhere like California and other places, if you plan on visiting a beach anytime soon, you want to make sure that you're very conscientious of where you are stepping and disturbing because there might be nesting birds nearby. Some places are very good about posting signs for plovers and terns and other beach nesting birds, but not every state or county is always on top of making sure that people are informed about the wildlife in that area. So if you're hoping as things reopen in your area that you'll be able to visit the beach, assuming you have a beach nearby, just try to think of this when you go to the beach and make sure that you're helping to protect these animals so that they can safely raise their young. Vermont is also trying to encourage people to remember that loons are nesting around some of their lakes. Now loons are found throughout the U.S., So you might be in the Midwest as well, and there might be loons nesting around your local lakes as well. So if you are going outdoors and visiting these spaces, whether it's on a coast or inland by a lake, you want to make sure that you're considering the type of wildlife that live in these areas and the fact that they are trying to raise their young. If you are intentionally going to these places to enjoy these animals, Try to remember to bring binoculars or something where you can view the animals at a distance. You should never be approaching the animals and disturbing them. Typically, a good rule of thumb is if an animal looks at you, you have now technically disturbed it. I know that it's sometimes hard to avoid. Sometimes you didn't even see the animal and it's looking at you. But in general, if you are approaching an animal and it looks in your direction it's now acknowledging your existence. And it's really important that you not disturb it because if it takes flight, some birds will abandon nests. It takes energy to do that, energy that they have to restore with food, which takes time and effort. And they're not always guaranteed a meal. And so while it may seem harmless to us that we've scared off a bird and it's flown away, sometimes it can have an impact. So in order to reduce the obstacles of these animals and make their lives a little bit easier. Just try to be as respectful as possible, view things as often from a distance as you can, and just try to be very aware of your surroundings when you're out in nature. Again, I completely understand that it's not always possible, and if you're walking along a trail and there's an animal nearby and you're worried about disturbing it by walking by, to a certain extent, some animals are aware of places that have high human traffic. So if you're on a very commonly trodden trail that people will take their morning jogs through or walk their dogs by or take their kids through, it's usually not a big deal because that is an established place for people and much of the local wildlife will understand that that is a human traffic area. But if you are not on trails and you're in wild spaces... You're no longer in a place that is a designated human traffic area, and you are more likely to disturb wildlife because most wildlife typically avoids human traffic areas. So when you leave those designated areas in parks and go off the trail, you are more likely to stumble across and disturb animals. Now, I understand for some people that's the intent. If they are hunting or if they're birding, so on and so forth, but during this time of the season when animals are trying to raise their young, it is most imperative that we make sure that we give them as much space as possible. Later in the summer, as the young have grown, chicks are out of the nest, you know, the young deer are approaching the, the end of their first year when they're sub-adults, the human impact is not as severe as it would have been when they were much younger. So in general... If people want to go out and enjoy nature, there's nothing wrong with that. But during the springtime and the early summer, we just want to be a little bit more cautious when we're re-entering these wildlife places, especially since many places have been absent of humans for a prolonged period of time. We want to make sure that we're not having a strong impact on wildlife as we return to what may be considered normal for some of us. Jumping across the pond with some of the news, there is an eagle reintroduction program happening in Wales. So if you're unfamiliar with Wales, it is uh, basically kind of a southwestern region of England. They are looking at a project to help reintroduce golden eagles and white-tailed eagles, which have been extinct in that region of England since the 19th century they are going back into the records to look at the literature and also trying to find whatever cultural and scientific artifacts to help prove that part of these eagles' distribution was within Wales. Even though there's plenty of evidence in other parts of England, unfortunately, when you run a reintroduction program, you do have to prove that the places where you're reintroducing the animals was actually part of their native range, even if it might seem like common sense that they were probably there. So in order to support their program, scientists and researchers have been gathering records to prove that these eagles have existed in and around Wales since before their extinction in the 19th century. So far, they've been able to find more than 150 historical references supporting the existence of golden eagles and white-tailed eagles in Wales, as well as some fossilized remains of both of these birds in Welsh lands. Currently, golden eagles are only known to to breed in Scotland, and the white-tailed eagle has also been reintroduced to Scotland as well. Part of this is because the natural landscape of Scotland really supports the habitat that these eagles would be found in. Now, there are plenty of places throughout England and Wales where these eagles would not be able to live because of the flat lands and hills, or that there's agriculture in those spaces that don't really support these animals very well. They really do need places with uh, rocky outcrops, cliffs, things like that, where they can have their nests and places to perch. So that is one of the other hurdles of this program, especially since humans alter landscapes, is not only looking for the evidence that these eagles once existed here so that they can reintroduce them, but also to ensure that there is still space for these eagles to exist And there are, thankfully, plenty of places that have nice rocky outcrops and slightly more mountainous regions that are more of a natural habitat for these eagles than the soft hills and flatlands of other parts of Wales and England. Bringing some of the news back home and going back to our original topic of protecting wild habitats the Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism's Wildlife Division has actually launched a program called Habitat First. And this is a really cool program that I personally wish I had in my state. So what it does is it gives private landowners access to wildlife biologists. And these wildlife biologists can offer certain services to landowners in order to help them develop wildlife-friendly habitats on their property. And so they can help them with technical assistance, which would include things like landscaping and how to plan out and manage a healthy, wild, life-friendly habitat. They can also help them find resources such as uh, cost-share programs and sign-on incentives that would help financially incentivize creating these habitats. Uh, They also do sort of like a tool share program where they can help loan out equipment such as drills and planters and other machine things to help people develop their land into these nice wildlife spaces. And also introduce them to other programs that can help enhance the one that they're part of. So there are programs such as the Environmental Quality Incentive Program, the Conservation Reserve Program enrollment, and so on, that help promote creating these wild spaces and natural habitats that protect biodiversity and provide ecosystem services that benefit people. And because these people are going to be able to consult with these wildlife biologists, it means that it can also help them kind of tailor how they design their wild spaces. Because we often treat creating things like a pollinator garden as a one-size-fits-all kind of program. But it does create some problems when people who live in certain regions of a state that may be drier have you know, clay in the soil, maybe it's wetter, maybe it's higher altitude, so on and so forth. They can't all support the exact same thing. Even here in Maryland, my state is not very large, but there are three separate regions to Maryland. There's a coastal region, there's the Piedmont region, and then there's the Appalachian region. And what you can grow where and how is not all the same throughout the state. And We're not nearly as big as a state like Kansas or some of the other Midwestern states. So it becomes a little problematic sometimes when we say, you know, go plant a pollinator garden because what constitutes a pollinator garden, what can be grown, how well it can be grown is all dependent on where a person lives, what their soil is like, how they're going to be able to manage it, so on and so forth. So it's really awesome that this program offers the expertise of biologists who will understand the person's needs based on where they're living and what they have at their disposal. In fact, I'm currently helping my own mother design a little native meadow for her garden, and her yard is built on clay. It's dry, but also floods very easily and is pretty much in that partial sun slash partial shade kind of area. And so we've had to very carefully plan out what plants can tolerate drought, ones that can tolerate clay, ones that can do the partial sun or partial shade, so on and so forth, so that I've had to very carefully craft this garden for her. And so out of the hundreds of potential native plants we could use for her pollinator garden, I'm only using about a dozen specific species because that is what is going to thrive in her garden. Because if I had just given her the generic list of Maryland pollinators and told her to go ahead and plant those, if it needed full sun or full full shade, her plants would not have survived in that area. And if they couldn't tolerate the clay or the potential drought conditions of where she lives it's really not going to work out well and she's going to waste all this time, money, and energy if she had gone with that generic one-size-fits-all pollinator garden. So that's all that I have for this week. I hope you guys enjoyed some of that news and updates. Of course, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me at TheNaturalist at TheNaggingNaturalist.com. You can also check out my website, TheNaggingNaturalist.com. I am also on social media, so you can find me on Facebook and Instagram under TheNaggingNaturalist, as well as on Twitter under the handle at Nag underscore Naturalist. I'll be back next week with a new episode. But until then, I hope you all have a wonderful week, and I'll be back later with some more about the wonderful world of wildlife.